We're uh, coming near to the end of a series of sermons where we're sort of water skiing through a section of the Old Testament known as the historical books. So we'll conclude this next week with uh, an overview of First and Second Chronicles. That means today we're looking at First and Second Kings. Um, if you've read First and Second Kings ever, or if you've just read bits of it, you'll know that about midway through First Kings, what happens is is kind of overviews of of how different leaders ruled, and mostly it's a bad story. Um, the the leaders whose reigns are highlighted there typically are tremendous failures, um, militarily, religiously, socially, a lot of tyranny, a lot of arrogance, a lot of dysfunction. By the time these books are written, God's people have been taken captive, taken into exile, enslaved, uprooted from their land. Their homes have been destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem is in ruins. It's a time of incredible devastation. Where will our hope come from? God's people might have been asking. So these two books are written to answer that question, and they start by saying, guess what? Even the best human leaders are not good enough. Therefore, don't put your hope in a human leader. Give your heart entirely to me, the Lord says to his people. I will renew you. I will restore you. And I will use you to change the world. The best human leaders are not good enough. But if you will follow me. There is hope for the world. We're going to read a couple of highlights. One of our elders, Michael Witt, is going to read from us a snapshot from the reign of King Solomon. And then toward the end of Second Kings from the reign of King Josiah. Thanks, Michael. Uh, read along with me. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose before the altar of the Lord, where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May you turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep the commands, decrees, and regulations he gave our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that... All the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time.
The king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in his book of the covenant. Not since the days of the judges who led Israel, nor throughout the days of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which had burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him to anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence, as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, there shall my name be. As for the other events of Josiah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Mike. So when I said Solomon and Josiah, you thought, hmm, that's interesting. You thought, seriously, three top five teams losing on the same day? I mean, hmm. That's interesting. But if we had grown up in ancient Israel, if we lived at the time that these two books were written, we would have heard Washington and Lincoln. We would have heard what well, these are these are two of the top four. Like if you were to list the greatest kings that God's people ever had in Old Testament times. Four names come to mind. David and his son Solomon. And then centuries later, a king named Hezekiah and his grandson Josiah. That's the pantheon of Israelite kings. Those are the heavy hitters. Those are your one through four batters in the all-star lineup of leaders of the people of God in Old Testament times. And so it's quite a claim in light of reading about two of these all-star kings to say that even the best human leaders aren't good enough. But that's what God is saying to us today through his word. That's what he was saying to his people when these books were written, that's what he's saying to us today. Even the best human leaders aren't good enough to prevent future disaster. That's what we learn from King Solomon as you study what First Kings has to say about him. I mean, that's not how it sounds when you first read about Solomon. Here's Solomon's prayer of blessing, a benediction pronounced over the people after they had just dedicated the temple 
David had raised the money to build the temple. Solomon, his son, carried it out. So now God's people have this sort of structure that can be the visible word of all God's promises as he had commanded in the scriptures how he should be worshipped. And God had promised to bring his people into a land and give them rest. And that's where we pick up with this prayer of blessing. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Promises to Abraham about this land fulfilled. Um, Verse 56 of chapter 8 says, Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. Promises to Moses fulfilled. Promises through Joshua fulfilled. Verse 57 says, May he never leave us nor forsake us. You remember a few weeks ago, we heard God promising that same thing to Joshua. This is a moment of great hope and triumph. All these promises coming true. It's such a a high point moment for God's Old Testament people, Israel. But a lot of work remains to be done. Verse 60 reminds God's people of what their purpose and mission is. He wants to change the world through us. Listen to verse 60 again. Solomon has just prayed that God would meet the daily needs of his people. And verse 60 says, So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. That's the reason Israel existed. That's the reason the church exists. That's the reason God has established a people on this planet to be his. In the Old Testament, that people was Israel, a nation where politics and church overlapped. With the coming of Jesus, those two have been separated So now the church is not a political institution, but we're here for the same reason Israel was here, to change the world so that all the nations of the world would know that there is one God and that that God is a God who has existed from eternity in this community of love and he wants love and life to flourish here in this world as it flourishes within the Trinity itself. So we're here for a purpose. And when Solomon prays this prayer, that purpose has not yet been completed. Israel hasn't borne witness to all the nations that there is one true God. Solomon is a phenomenal king. He is full of wisdom. You remember his prayer for wisdom and God grants it. He is wealthy. He is powerful politically and in military terms. And yet Solomon, if you keep reading the story through 1 Kings chapters 9 and 10, Solomon leads the people astray. And he starts to say, you know, it wouldn't hurt that much if we blended a little bit of worship of other gods with the worship of our God. And suddenly a nation that's put here to be a beacon of light to the world saying there is one true God becomes a nation sending a very different signal. There are lots of gods. 
There are lots of places from which we get hope and joy and blessedness. It doesn't really matter which one you choose. It doesn't matter how you mix and match them. Suddenly a people that was put here to send people towards safety and life and love starts to point the nations of the earth toward spiritual danger. Solomon, as great as he was, could not prevent. In fact, he did much to help disaster. The way his prayer of blessing ends, verse 61. Your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. We're reading this while we sit in Babylon. The temple Solomon was dedicating on this day has been razed to the ground, burned and destroyed by the Babylonians. We are slaves and we are reading this as a bitter reminder. Yeah, at that time, at that moment, Solomon, God's people were walking with him. But how long did it last? As great a king as Solomon was, one of the best human leaders ever. He wasn't good enough to prevent future disaster. His prayer opens. Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people. Solomon, how restful is it for me to be a slave in Babylon? We need a king greater than Solomon who can give us a rest that will not be disturbed by our own faithlessness. And if we're sitting in Babylon reading these words, we know that. We are weeping tears, longing for that king to come who can give us the rest that our God and Father desires, not only for us to know, but for all the nations of the world to know. That's the king we need. And that's why even the greatest of human leaders is never going to measure up. So what is God calling his people to do as they sit in Babylon remembering this kind of high point moment of Solomon's prayer at the temple? Do exactly what Solomon prayed about. He's calling us to give our whole hearts not to a human leader but to him. And if you think, I'm starting to hear a little American political subtext in this message. Yes, you are. Yes, This is a day for us as God's people to remember that our hope never has been in a human leader. God never calls us to give our whole hearts to anyone but himself. Right? Listen to Solomon's prayer. Verse 58. May he turn our hearts to him. Verse 61. Your hearts must be fully committed To the Lord our God. Okay, what does that mean? I have to have warm, fuzzy, Disney-like, princessy feelings when I think of God. Because that's what your heart is, right? Your heart is those kind of... When you wish upon a star, pixie dust, Jiminy Cricket, Pinocchio... That's what your heart is, right? No, not in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, 
Heart means something really big. Heart means your mind, your will, your emotions, and I'm going to pull a word now from the 1700s, your affections. Your heart is your ability to reason about the world and make conclusions. Your mind. Your heart, biblically speaking, includes your will, your ability to make choices and follow through on them. Scripture uses the word heart to include your mind and your will and your emotions, the ways that you react to stimuli around you. And in some degree, we cannot control those. They're like reflexes. You tap me in the knee hard enough with the hammer and I have no control over what happens next. Emotions work a bit like that. And then there are the affections, your deepest desires and longings. And the word heart is all of that. God wants all of you. He wants the way you think. He wants the way you make choices and follow through on them. He wants you to let him govern the way you understand your emotional responses to the world around you. And he wants to be at the center of your very deepest desires. Let me illustrate for a moment the distinction between emotions and affections. Okay, so just hypothetically speaking, you're building some stairs in your backyard because hypothetically speaking, your wife has said before your hypothetical son graduates from high school in just a few months, this backyard is going to look nicer than it does right now. So you're putting in some steps in the backyard, right? And um, imagine that you've uh, built two of them already and imagine hypothetically you're a bit of a perfectionist and you stand and notice that one of them is just not quite level. What emotional response comes to mind, right? When you sense that something you're trying to do has gone just that irritate. oh, that's it, irritation, irritatingly little bit wrong, irritation, frustration, anger, those are the emotions. But they all reflect this deep affection, a deep desire. I want to be skilled. I, I, want, I want to impact the world. And I want my plan for impacting the world to actually work out in the world. I was put here to make a difference. That deep, deep desire given by God, when it gets frustrated, anger, irritation, those, those come to the surface. Those are the emotions that correspond to that deep affection, that deep desire. Sadness, grief, tears. We don't have to hypothetically imagine those, right? When, when a loved one dies, when a loved one is going through serious illness, Those are the emotions that come. Why? Because our affections, our deepest desires include the desire to love people and to be loved. We were created in the image of a God who is a community of love, the Trinity. So we want to love and we want to be loved. And disease and death frustrate that desire 
to be in loving relationships. That's deep stuff. That's what God wants. God says, give me your whole heart. Give me the way you think. Give me the way you make choices. Give me your emotional life. Give me your deepest desires and affections. I'm sorry. Emotions live here. Affections live here. In your gut. You're deeper down. Give me everything. Your mind. Your emotions. Your deepest desires and affections. Don't entrust them to any human leader because they're not good enough. Give me your whole heart. That's God's logic. If we give our whole hearts to him, he will change the world through us. He will change the world through us. So if you're sitting in Babylon and you're reading First and Second Kings, you're hanging your head and you're saying... That was a great plan, Lord, but now it's too late. There is no throne. It was destroyed. There is no temple. It was burned. There is no Jerusalem to go back to. Its walls and gates were leveled. And whatever faithfulness there might have been in us at this time, Solomon's prayer said, it is long dead. And God says, lift up your heads. Lift up your heads. It is not too late. Return to me. If your heart has wandered, come back to me. If you have been giving away your deepest desires to some idol, today is the day to come back home. It is not too late. He will change the world through us. Right? Israel's calling. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. One of our roles as the people of God on this planet is to teach everyone we know That they can be free from the disappointment that comes when you put all your hope in a human leader. We can set people free from that kind of roller coaster ride that happens. I'm pinning my hopes on Solomon. Oh man, he turns out to be kind of a scoundrel. We get to proclaim freedom and say, look. I know one person, not a human person, but a personal God. You can pin all your hopes on him. He will never let you down. The Lord is God and there is no other. And it will always hurt you bad if you trust a human leader to be your God. It will always disappoint you. Even the best, the Solomons of the world can't prevent future disaster. So what does that mean for us today? It means that our hope never has been, never should be, in a party or a president or a government. 
God did not promise to save the world. Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please listen to the whole sermon if you're listening to this recording. Don't take this line out of context. God never promised to save the world through democracy. Now, it's possible that the conditions for love and life flourishing on this planet at our, in our century, it's possible that those conditions will flourish better under democratic governments than on, under other kinds of governments. And if God's vision for human flourishing is best furthered by that kind of government, then that's why we're interested in it, because of God's vision. But we don't put our hope in democracy. We don't put our hope in a government or a party or a platform. We put our hope in the Lord. He is God and there is no other. And our God's throne was not shaken this week. Our God's throne is secure. And our job in the world is secure. He wants an imperfect, forgiven people whose whole hearts are given to him to change the world, to show all the peoples of the whole earth, every nation, that he is the only source of life and love and goodness. That's his vision for us. A lot of us are afraid. That's what this last election has been about. Oh, Lord, help me. Help me, help me, help me. (laughs) I'm close to the quicksand here, right? How, how, How can you be faithful in a moment like this, right? To not talk about the events of this week's election would send the signal that Christianity is a fairy tale religion and it never touches reality. But there are lots of ways we could talk about it that would sound exactly like I'm saying, let's put our hope in human leaders. So I'm going to try to be very careful. But here's what I want to say. One big factor in this last election was people's concern about what would happen to others who have had a very hard life. So on the left, politically, there's been concern. What will happen to immigrants, to children of immigrants who are in this nation? Will they be deported? They've had a very hard life. What will happen to them? Who will speak up for them? What will happen to to people who don't share convictions about heterosexual marriage? What will happen to them? What what will happen to people who have lived a very hard life in terms of racial tension in our culture? Who will speak up? What will happen to those people? And then on the right same questions being asked. What will happen to people who have been kind of left behind by a technological revolution that has been displacing and will continue displacing many workers who are not educated to be part of that revolution? What will happen to them? Their life has been hard in some ways. Who will remember 
their plight. No matter which side of the equation you're on, you're asking the question, what about the people whose lives have been so hard? Guess what? We are the answer to that question. No party, no president, no government is God's answer to that question. God's answer to that question is we will happen. We don't have to sit around and wait for the right person to be elected to extend mercy to people whose lives have been very hard. We are God's plan A for extending mercy. He has joined us to Christ and therefore we are called to go love people whose lives have been hard. And if our government makes it easier for us to do that, then wonderful. And if our government makes it hard for us to do that, then who cares? That's our calling no matter what policies say. It's our calling. No, Go love somebody whose life has been hard. That's your calling. We don't hang our heads and say, better luck next time. We don't shout in triumph and say, yes, every problem will now be solved because you're person lost and my person won no even the best human leaders aren't good enough so God says don't give your whole heart to any human leader give your whole heart to me and I will restore you and renew you and change the world through you at the other end of second kings Not Solomon now, but Josiah. King Josiah. The best king God's people ever had. Maybe that's the first time you've heard that, right? Normally people would say it was David. Because David was a man after God's own heart. But listen to what Scripture says about Josiah. Chapter 23, verse 25. Neither before, as in David... Nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and all his soul and all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. Wait a minute. All your heart, soul, strength? That sounds like the first greatest commandment, right? To love the Lord that way? Josiah did this. Wonderful. We finally found the leader we were waiting for. This is the king. He is the one who will do it. Solomon wasn't great enough to prevent future disaster, but maybe Josiah is. Very next verse. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all that Manasseh had done to provoke him. To anger. Josiah did so many things right. But Manasseh. Before him. Had led the people to do so many things. So wrong. That it was too late. Greatest human king can't prevent future disaster. The greatest human leader can't. Make up. For previous failure. If you were sitting in Babylon 
reading First and Second Kings, you understood very clearly a few things. One, even the best human leaders are not good enough. We need some other kind of leader. Two, we need to give our whole hearts to our God. If our hearts have drifted, today is the day to give to Him our mind, our will, our emotions, our deepest desires. All to Him forever. The other thing you understood if you sat in Babylon was, Lord, what has just happened to us? It was your judgment falling down on us. And we understand exactly why it had to happen. Because of our failure. So, Lord, how could we hope in ourselves if our failure has led us to this place? All of these questions are leading us to God's greatest promise. He has given us a king. A king who gave his whole heart to God. A king who could say to us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because he did it himself. How could King Jesus prevent us from messing it all up again? And the answer is, God's judgment fell on him. And we know exactly why. Not because of his failure, but ours. How can we have that rest that Solomon talked about? Through this king, Jesus. He has taken away our faithlessness. He has paid the price for our failures. Josiah couldn't be good enough to overcome the failure of Manasseh. But Jesus was good enough to overcome the failures of anybody who puts their trust in him. Why? He's not a great human leader. He is the son of God. He is no mere man. And that's why I give him my whole heart. And if you haven't ever done that, if you haven't given your whole heart to Jesus, today is the day. Human leaders will always disappoint you. The Son of God never will. Lift up your heads. This is not a day for us to despair. This is a day for people who have been loved by the Son of God to leave this place, find people whose lives are hard, and love them as you have been loved. Let's be a light to the nations around us. Show the world the one place they can always put their trust and never be disappointed. The God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good news. It's worth singing about. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing together our final hymn. Lord God, even the best human leader isn't good enough. And so I offer to you for your critique every word I have just spoken. Lord, where I have said things that were hurtful, damaging, unhelpful, unclear, I pray that you would give your people the grace to forget it, to ignore it, to focus instead on the truth about you and your son. Lord, many people in our world are confused, hurting, even despairing this week or tempted to put too much trust in the mechanisms of human power. Lord, if not for your mercy and grace, we would fall in line right alongside. Set us free. The only power we trust is yours. And that power works through weakness, the weakness of a cross and the strength of love. May we leave this place ready to love because of the cross of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.